Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. My name is Elizabeth Liba, and I am super stoked, excited, beyond happy, wildly, amazingly happy to welcome my esteemed guest today, Dr. D.L. Stewart. Dr. Stewart, how are you today? Hi, Elizabeth. I'm doing well, thank you. Good to be here with you. Thank you so much. I am so excited, and I've been talking about you coming on the podcast, probably to everybody that will listen to me. So I want to welcome you and thank you so much for taking your time out to be with us today. Um, before we really jump into, <laughs> and before we jump into some questions and, and get a little bit more um, impact and, and interesting feedback from you on some of the great things that you're doing, I want to ask, first and foremost, we're all sheltering in place. A lot of us have been impacted by COVID. How are you doing? How's your family? How is everybody in your immediate circle, your coworkers? How is everything going with you on a personal level? Yeah, sure. No, thank you. And and indeed, you know, the word unprecedented has been probably overused at this point. Um, mm. And yet it's, it's kind of accurate, right? You know, we haven't seen anything like this in, in literally 102 years. So, yeah. um but <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, um, I am I am well. I um, my son I have a son who is in college and is actually oh. um, preparing to um, go back to class um, here in a week or so, um, and moving into an off-campus house um, with a couple of friends. And so um, he's been able to stay healthy. He's um, Friends are healthy, you know, doing well in that regard. I'm a parent, and so, of course, I have some concerns um, uh-huh. about him being out on his own in the so far away because he's at right. uh, the Ohio State University um, while I'm here in Colorado. But um have some concerns. I'm looking at what um, Ohio State is doing um, in terms of how it's treating student employees, and I'm not pleased. Um, about yeah. that. I actually just sent an email to the provost today. <laughs> to oh, wow. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. They don't want that. <laughs> because, yes, I am one of those parents, and I'm not ashamed of yeah. it either. Um, yeah. I don't go overboard with it, and I usually check in with my son to be like, are you okay with me sending sure. this email? <laughs> Sure, sure. Yeah, but it's but yeah. important. You know, you're you're yeah. you're concerned, and you want to make sure that he's okay. So that makes sense. Oh yeah, totally. You know, it's, it's the institution is, and I'm sure Ohio State is not the only one who has this policy. But um, you know, student employees are considered part time, um, obviously, huh. and um, so therefore they don't get paid time off. Um, huh. 
and that's probably a general policy that has existed before COVID. Um, huh. But I think there's a significant problem with that during COVID in that um, you have students who may be out of work because they get sick um, sure. and to stay home. You have um, student employees who may find their um, their campus uh, place of employment closed because of um, an increase in, case, in cases and whatnot. And so mm -hmm. uh, what happens um, to them when they, all of a sudden their income dries up? Mm -hmm. um, and particularly, you know, students don't work on campus just to have pocket money. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not um, superfluous to their being able to actually for many of them pay bills and buy books and other supplies for classes to some of them who are living off campus to pay rent. Um, you know, so there's an equity issue there mm -hmm. um, that, you know, my son is the one who pointed it out. Um, mm -hmm. He's active on Twitter. Um, I learned about this one from seeing his Twitter. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Um, and, and for him, you know, he's pointing out the equity issues involved um, in how this is going to disparate, have a disparate effect um, on students who don't have other means, who don't have parents who can just be like, oh, yeah, no worries. I got, I can send you $1,000 a month, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I'm not one of those parents myself. So I <laughs> <laughs> Same here. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, you know, he, he he may be in a better position than some, but certainly, mm. you know, when when we think about who most of our students have always been mm -hmm. who work on campus, our you know, student employees, um, have always been from, from the beginnings of um, you know, higher ed in the United States and actually in, even in uh England and, and elsewhere in Europe, students who work on campus were students were students who had to work on campus, who had sure. to work in order to support themselves through their education. And so um, we have, like, like I've already said, you know, some serious equity and ethical issues when we are not um, doing what we need to do in terms of policy and practice to support those students being able to, um, to maintain, you know, a, a living, you know, so that they're not, so that they don't become housing insecure, so they don't become food insecure, so that they're not compromising their health to stay at work you know, um, in order to, because otherwise they'll lose their income. Anyway, I've gotten off, I've gotten on a soapbox. No, but. no, but you know what? Everything that you're saying is so right on point. And as the mom of a 21 year old in college, I have a lot of the same concerns because you're right. There are equity issues. There are so many issues that tend to disadvantage students from working class backgrounds and, and, and these are things that all need to be considered as colleges are going into approaching how to manage all of these different issues. So I'm glad that you bring that up because I don't think we've even talked about that as far as the student workers and, and some of the issues that they're going to have to navigate as we go into the fall. So I'm glad that you, it's like you're, you're raising your son to be an advocate as well, just as you have been an advocate for those that are facing some disparities. So that's an, that's an awesome thing to see that being passed down from generation to generation as he's uh, launching into his college career as well. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, I love to hear origin stories, Dr. Stewart. So tell me a little bit about your entering into higher education and, and how you managed to 
be where you are today. You've been in higher education as faculty for 18 years, if I'm not mistaken. You're a professor now at Colorado State University. You're also a co-chair in the Student Affairs Higher Education Department. Tell me a little bit about how you made that determination that you wanted to. I read an article about how you were talking about the hope for higher education and how a lot of us end up in higher ed. But tell me in your own words why you decided that you wanted to make your, your career in higher education. Absolutely. Um, so, Elizabeth, I was a, um, a uh, college student in the early 90s um, and was a, you know, in some ways I, I was um, a loudmouth student, um, what would probably be in these today's terms a student activist. Um, and was involved in sort of looking at the cultural, political, social climate of my undergraduate institution, which was Kalamazoo College, um, which is a small private liberal arts institution in Michigan. And um, was very, um, was very vocal <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. in um, from, you know, latter half of my first year on campus through um, my senior year, um, I was I was known on a first name basis by the president, which, you know, at a small oh, wow. private college is not hard to do because there at the time I was there, there was only like 1200 students on campus and still, um, hmm. I don't think the president knew many people. <laughs> So you were one of the chosen few. <laughs> for oh, good or um, he, he knew me. Um, but, you know, I, I was very concerned. You know, I'm from New York City um, mm -hmm. originally. I was born and raised in New York, um, in Harlem particularly. And, you know, there was a certain consciousness, certain cultural, mm -hmm. social, political consciousness that mm -hmm. I was inculcated in as a child in Harlem in, you know, being born in the, you know, late early 70s. Um, and, you know, so growing up through that period. And, um, you know, I was always a bit of um, a provocateur, <laughs> perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a predominantly white high school um, as a scholarship kid, an independent um, predominantly white high school, and um, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, uh, where in my senior year, I wrote an article in the student newspaper questioning whether my school was racist because there were hardly any faculty of color. You know? wow. <laughs> um, the pattern was very early on. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, issues of diversity and inclusion and equity and justice, mm -hmm. particularly through a racial lens at that time when I was an undergrad, um, it's expanded considerably since then, um, but was, a, was very core, mm -hmm. um, very, very core to my college experience, very, very core to my learning, development, and growth um, as a young adult. And as I graduated from Kalamazoo, I left, um, I left college to take a position actually in multicultural affairs at another small um, private college in Ohio um, named Kenyon, Kenyon College. 
um, because, you know, I, I was encouraged by um, an administrator at Kalamazoo to apply for the position, even though I, you know, was, would have been just coming out with, um, with, a, with a bachelor's degree. Um, because she said to me, you've been, you've been doing this for four years. This is the work you've been doing for four years. You might as well go get paid for it. Um, and so that was my entrance into working in colleges and universities uh, was through the door of talking about issues of diversity and inclusion and equity and justice. That um, is what framed my introduction to what it meant to work in colleges and universities and my, purview, my, my view of being an administrator. Um, and then I went into graduate school and that continued to be a primary focus um, of mine um, through my master's program and definitely into my doctorate. So I determined though that I wanted, at the time I wanted to be able to have an impact on the, tr the education and preparation of other student affairs administrators, so those who would work primarily with students outside of the classroom for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what led me into a faculty career. So I've actually just finished, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm starting my 20th year actually wow. now with this academic year um, as a faculty member in higher education. Um, working mostly with master's and doctoral students um, who are preparing for either preparing for careers in terms of the master's level or um, continuing on um, as mid-level, senior-level um, administrators in colleges and universities in terms of the PhD um, um, level, the doctoral level rather. So, um, and throughout that, my research um and other writing scholarly writing has all really focused um, around issues of equity and diversity um, generally um, not just through a racial lens um, anymore but looking also at gender and particularly transgender students um, and and other populations within colleges and universities um, sexuality issues um, and also, you know, very early in my um, research career, I, I talked a lot about faith and religion and spirituality um, in my research and included that lens as well. And um, I've actually just um, put the last touches on a chapter for a text going into, um, going in print here in a couple, um, couple few weeks. Uh, with Camila Mumin Rashad on the intersections of um, religion and faith with um, with race, and particularly looking at racially minoritized, religiously minoritized people of color, right? Hmm. Um, so, you know, for instance, um, Black Muslims um, as a as a easy to reach for example. So. Um, that has continued to be a thread into my research as well. But generally, you know, it's, it's looking at what are the experiences 
um, and outcomes? How do minoritized students um, learn, develop, and grow in college? What kind of experiences and outcomes do they have? Um, which I've studied not just in terms of current student populations, but also historically. Um, so I did um, uh, historical narratives um, with um, alumni and um, other student, other um, collegians who were black, um, black collegians who attended a set of small private liberal arts colleges actually in between 1945 and 1965, right? And so um, that post-World post War II and before um, really the, the effects of those major civil rights legislation, um, the Civil Rights Act um, particularly really showed up, began to show up in enrollments in historically white institutions. Um, and so there's that I've looked at and, and continue to think very deeply about the ways that institutions, colleges and universities show up um, around issues of diversity and equity, which is what led to the particular article that um, we're going to talk about today. Um, and so, you know, the history and philosophy also like so people institutions show up like they do now because of where they came from okay. um it's not new right and what we're dealing with now is is seated in um the historical and philosophical development of colleges and universities so um i say that would be another major uh focus of my own research, you know, and, and deep thinking about what it means to do college, right, um, and what colleges do. Absolutely, and I, I want to jump into that. I really want to talk about the article. I, I first became aware of your research and, and just a lot of your really wise insight from the Inside Higher Education article from last year. So this was even before all of the recent resurgence in attention to issues surrounding diversity and inequity and marginalization of um, Blacks and other people of color. And we're looking at sexuality, we're looking at gender, we're looking at all these different issues, I think, through a more um, I guess, stringent lens in terms of how do we fix these issues. And, and I'm, I'm definitely wanting to jump into that article because it resonated, that language of appeasement article. It was, it just went, that piece of the questions that you asked in that article just went viral and it really resonated with a lot of people. So talk to me a little bit about um, that article. The article was from Inside Higher Education and you wrote about the language of appeasement, the language of appeasement and how education, higher education as a whole, when trying to tackle, like you talked about all of these issues, a lot of things that you've been thinking about very deeply over this, over your career, when higher education goes to tackle some of these issues in terms of diversity and inclusion, that there's a language of appeasement that is used. And I think this is really informative not only for people in higher education, but also in the corporate section, but from your experience and from your study of the language of appeasement, what exactly is that? What do you mean by the language of appeasement? 
Sure. So, Elizabeth, let me um, preface my response to that question by just clarifying some things about the article itself. So, um, it was written in 2017. Um, so oh, 2017. It, it, Thank you. Yeah. So, it's about three years old um, or so now. Um, and it was written under a former name. So, I think that's very important. Um, for listeners to understand, I do not use that name any longer that the article was written under um, and um, not to be referred to um, by that name, um, even though obviously that's the name the, that the citation to the article would go under. Um, so, and my pronouns that, I, that are listed in my bio in the article have shifted. And so I use he and they pronouns um, and go by DL um, professionally as as my um, as my name. So want to make that clear first um, as we start out because there's um, a lot of confusion and um, errors um, <laughs> and yeah. harm people not doing their research and not understanding sure. that. So and thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate you clarifying yeah. that too, because it's very important to understand for sure. So when I talk about the language of appeasement in this article, <clears throat> I'm referring to um, the reality that students over multiple decades, you know, so a lot of times um, uh, people in the popular um, discourse talk about the 1960s um, and student protests in the 1960s around um, particularly Black and Latinx, um, students around the need for ethnic studies, around um, uh, the need for more uh, faculty of color, around the need for institutions to recruit more students of color, that there needs to be more financial aid directed at um, underrepresented, racially minoritized students, um, that there needs to be spaces on campus where minoritized students uh, of various identities can gather, you know, and organize and, and heal together from the hostile campus climate that they experience, that institutions respond more effectively to issues of bias and discrimination on campus, not just committed by other students, but also committed by their faculty in their classrooms, right? And so, we often talk and say and look at the 60s as the um, beginning of those protests. The reality is that actually um, there, you can see strains of those protests even back into the 40s um, and 50s, um, which is something that I learned in terms of that historical research that I mentioned earlier that I did. Um, so there's been, you know, my math is, is not that great, but there's been a whole lot of years, okay, of, <laughs> of <laughs> color um, who, um, who, who have been saying, you know, this is not enough. We need, um, we need something else, you know, from institutions. And administrative leaders, particularly, you know, we're talking about in the context of historically white institutions, um, they, you know, they started hiring, particularly within the last couple decades, chief diversity officers. They've got perhaps special endowments to support increased financial aid. They may be launching cluster hires. So that means they're bringing in um, multiple 
you know, two, three, four, five um, faculty of color in at one time um, into, you know, across departments or within a particular area. They're doing diversity programming speakers. They pay consultants to come tell them how they need to do better. Um, but they're not actually, you know, I call them in the article and, and also in the talk that I did at University of Illinois, um, Urbana-Champaign in 2016 um, or earlier in 2017, I can't remember when, um, but I talk um, in that speech and I reference in the article, I call them Kool-Aid approaches. Kool-Aid approaches, right. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know, like folks that grew up on Kool-Aid, mm -hmm. you know, you get the little packet, you throw mm -hmm. it in the water, you add some sugar, you stir it and boom, you got, you know, um, you got juice, right? You got right. Grape, you got purple juice, you know, or red right. juice or whatever. And <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember those days. <laughs> right, right. But those don't fundamentally um, change the institution mm -hmm. or the students or faculty that are there, right? So this, you know, add and stir mm -hmm. approaches don't actually change the institution. Um, and sometimes, you know, students are recognizing these very tangible, um, visible ways that their institutions are lacking, right? Mm -hmm. So representation of faculty, representation of students, representation of staff, um, financial help, you know, all of these things are looking at the curriculum, which they absolutely should be doing. Mm -hmm. And there are ways that only addressing those very visible pieces don't actually necessarily change the contour of the institution to provide the better experience and climate um, in an organizational framework that students are actually asking for, right? right. Um, and so, you know, trying to get at, by trying to get at all of those um, um, front-facing pieces, what they're actually trying to do is get an institution to shift how it functions and how it even thinks about issues of equity, hmm. right? Um, but those front-facing approaches don't get you there unless you're doing other things as well. And I call it the language of appeasement because institutions will do those things. Okay, here, yeah, we're, we, we will show you how we are doing, uh, we're putting more rec our recruitment um, advertisements for postings in places where more people of color are likely to see them. And so that way we get more applications. Hmm. That's what we did to help get more faculty of color. <laughs> nice. Hmm. Are you satisfied now? Like, see, we did this, you hmm. know. Yes, we, we now have an admissions counselor who is specifically going out into, you know, um, an urban, you know, an urban is a code word for people of color, um, low-income people of color. We're going into an urban area to do recruitment. See, so now we're actually responding to what you've said. Um, yeah, we've got, we've found a way, some institutions, not, not all institutions have the resources, financial resources to do this. Some of the most elite and well-resourced institutions have done this. Um, well, here's a fund we set apart with, usually it's merit funding, 
uh, necessarily need-based. Some institutions recognize and go make the step to need-based funding. Others, well, here's a special merit scholarship for particularly promising students of color. That you have to be in a very narrow niche of student of color to even qualify to get. Um, so it actually doesn't address the larger scale picture that students have, <laughs> students of color have, right? And so there's all of these ways that institutions are trying to appease the demands without actually fundamentally changing the structure and the ethos of the institution itself. So you can do all of these things here and how you go about your business never changes. So you get in more faculty of color, but then they go through an annual merit process or their tenure and promotion process and get kicked out or get low ratings because the um, criteria being used to assess them is still white-centric and white supremacist. Right. Oh, which is so infuriating, right? That is so frustrating right. for faculty of color who are like, okay, how is it that I'm not getting tenure? How is it that I, my reviews are, are poor? But you talk about whiteness as property, and I guess it kind of goes in hand in hand with that as to the standards that faculty are held to when they're coming from different um, backgrounds that as the, the quote unquote standard. How, how does that work? Oh, gosh. So this is <laughs> like, do you have all day? Because I can explain it to you. <laughs> like, how does that, how does that function? It just seems so like bizarre to me. Well, so <laughs> yeah, I, there's, there's a higher ed researcher called Roman um, Liera, who talks about um, the culture of niceness. Hmm. Um, as a reflection of whiteness. And so um, all the ways that, um, and Cheryl Harris, who I referenced in the article, talks about whiteness mm -hmm. as property. Um, but we're really pointing back historically to the ways that um, standards for what scholarship is supposed to look like, mm -hmm. what scholarship, what counts as, so what counts as scholarship, Mm -hmm. who is able to do that, and, and all of that has to do with um, the methodologies that researchers use, it has to do with what journals that researchers publish in, it has to do with what topics researchers choose to do, and so for um, any minoritized faculty, and I want to point out that I'm saying minoritized with an I-Z-E-D um, at the end and not minority um, for very particular reasons um, to, to show the process by which um, people who are not uh, in the norm, in the privileged norm, get minoritized, get shunted oh, to I'm the getting goose, I'm getting goosebumps. Oh, my get sidelined, get pushed to the margins, right? It's not something that's inherent to right. the character of that group. It is something that's a process that happens um, as a, a, a um, as a um, instrument of white supremacy, right? And cis right. patriarchy, white supremacy. So, 
minoritized is not something that only applies to race. It also applies to gender and sexuality and social class and ability um, and disability as well. So, um, so I got off on that side note and I lost where I was going. But I think, um, so when minoritized faculty get evaluated against these norms, that don't necessarily reflect good research. They reflect, you know, in terms of we talk about from a racial standpoint, they reflect white research, mm -hmm. right? And they reflect um, what has been deemed good based on what the norms that have been created by white researchers and scholars, right? And so that also extends into student evaluations, right? And so you should show up as a certain kind of instructor in class. Mm -hmm. And there is now a volume of research that has demonstrated the student evaluation suck at actually evaluating the instructor <laughs> because they are, and I could have used a more colorful language, but I'm trying to be sure. nice. Um, sure. But <laughs> I understand. Trust me, I'm right with you every step of the way here. <laughs> they do a crappy job because right. they actually are heavily influenced by student-held biases. Mm -hmm. And so people of color, women and trans folk, um, mm -hmm. gay, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual folk, um, and other, you know, on the that spectrum of sexuality um, are constantly international faculty, particularly mm -hmm. if you have an accent, that an accent. Is, mm -hmm. right, um, that makes you, quote, unquote, hard to understand. You know, so there's all of these groups of faculty who are disserviced by the standard student evaluation, course, course evaluation. But these are being made um, in many institutions still being made uh, as criteria against which to judge someone's um, worth, value, contribution to the institution, the quality of their teaching, research, um, and, you know, and, and creative, um, creative process, you know, cre creative products, rather, for faculty who are, um, who are engaged in performance arts and visual arts and whatnot, that they also experience this. And so um, there's all kinds of ways that, you know, the institution can say, well, look, we did X, Y, Z to bring in all of these minoritized faculty and, you know, oh, well, they left. They couldn't cut it. They couldn't cut it. They left. Right? <laughs> and oh, so, wow. you know, oh, well, throw off our hands. You know, now mm. there are some institutions who are recognizing that that's a faulty approach, that there are problems mm. happening in the pipeline of mm. career advancement that are pushing people out, mm. right? Um, and you've got some institutions that are doing work around that. Not nearly enough, in my opinion. And so you end up then with this, um, uh, this very much uh, situation, with the situation that very much is an appeasement frame, right? Mm. So we'll look like we're doing what you asked us to, okay? But we won't, we, we either won't really do it well, <laughs> we'll, have, we'll, we'll half step it, right? And or it's actually not going to change anything in terms of how we 
function and operate. So that culture of nightness, that whiteness is property, is going to be held um, sacred <laughs> and protected right. in all of these other efforts, right? Which is why I started, you know, this, um, and the article is presented as a point counterpoint. Um, and as I have evolved and continue to think about this issue, I now frame it more as a continuum, you know, so where you can slide along the slide ruler from diversity and inclusion more toward equity and justice, and you can also fall backward um, or back along the um, continuum toward diversity and inclusion. Um, but yes, it's presented as sort of this these mutually mutually oppositional um, positions in the article. And I still think they're mutually oppositional. They're, they're related. You can't get to equity and justice unless you are doing some form of diversity and inclusion. Um, and you can't maintain your diversity and inclusion if you're not doing equity and justice. So they're not the same thing. Right. right? They're not substitutable words. You know, right. they, I believe words have meaning. Um, and they don't all mean the same thing. <laughs> Right, right. Um, was trying to get at here a different way to frame thinking about the distinctions between the two. What does it need? What's necessary to actually get to institutional transformation that that is anchored in equity, not equality, but equity, right. and anchored in justice, not fairness. Right. So. Can you, can you talk about that before we get into your questions? Because I love the way that you frame this, and I love the idea of it being like that slide scale, that ruler, because I think a lot of times people think, okay, diversity inclusion, and they just stop right there. But like you said, you have mm -hmm. to really advance that and move towards the equity and justice. And I think a lot of people don't want to hear that. They hear justice, like, oh, what is that, a riot? Like, what's going on? Oh, I want to hear about right, uh, justice, you know? So let's talk about that. But before we get to that, can you break down that difference for a lot of people that don't understand when we're talking about the fight for equality or we're talking about this equity and, and why we need to have equity as opposed to equality? Can you explain that for maybe listeners or people that don't really understand the differentiation between yeah. those two concepts? Sure, sure. Um, basically, you know, you hear people will say basically equality is about everybody getting the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, everybody has the same chance to get to college, right? Mm -hmm. um, which one isn't true, right, first of all. Um, <laughs> so point one, everybody does not have the same chance to get to college. But right. um, when we talk about, let's say, from a merit meritocracy or merit-based um, lens, we can say, well, everybody has a chance to get to college, right? There's a college for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. um, when we think about an equity issue, rather, and let's talk about college access. Hey everyone, this is Joe, just reminding you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com where you can find and explore all of the content that we've released under the EdUp Experience brand, including multiple podcast series, EdUp Elites, EdUp Embedded, and EdUp Experts, you can also suggest topics or guests for our podcast. Then head over to YouTube, check out our channel, The Edup Experience, and you're going to find that my amazing co-host, Elizabeth Liba, has started a new web series called Edup Unplugged, where she talks about racism in America with special guests coming on that web series. 
We've got a lot going on at the EdUp Experience. Again, check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. Now let's get back to our guest. Mm-hmm. Um, the equitable question, right, becomes, the equity question rather becomes, so what are the systems, the structures, the policies that make it so that certain minoritized students only ever get into a certain sector of higher ed, a certain class of institution, right? Is there something that is driving minoritized students into a certain group of institutions versus others, right? Um, And how are financial aid policies, for instance, um, related to that? Um, How are, you know, everyone, let's say you get into, you know, this college, this wonderful college um, that says it's going to provide you this amazing um, institute, this amazing education, but you don't have, and you got financial aid, but you can't cover your basic necessities. You can't cover books. And so you're really not getting the same education, the same quality of educational experience as the rest of your college peers. That's an equity issue. Equality says where you got in, you got admitted, and you got financial aid. So don't complain. You're here. So be quiet, basically. You got here. We paid your tuition. Okay, that's nice. And I'm food insecure now. Right. Right. I'm housing insecure. Um, let's say because you have a um, a live on campus requirement for first year students, and the cost of campus housing often is higher in some places than living off campus. But you forced me to live on campus, and right. the scholarship you gave me only covers my tuition and fees, doesn't cover my room and board. Right. Right. And so. I have to take on a higher level of debt than other students and that I otherwise would be able to to do. And there's no guarantee I'm actually going to be able to make enough money to comfortably pay that back, right? So then we get into recognizing the, the issues of job discrimination, right, in hiring and salary. So you may get hired, but you're not going to get paid the equivalent salary um, to someone else, right? And so all of these systems and processes impact what actually gets to um, equity in college access. So people don't want to talk about that. Right. That's uncomfortable, quote, unquote, to talk about. Right. Right. It's highly uncomfortable. How do we how do we make it before we even talk about the questions and some of the questions that we need to ask? How do we make that something that is more mainstream? How do we make that a conversation that is as natural as conversations that are had about any other topic? I think one of the frustrations that I have, and maybe you can shed some light on this because you've done so much research and you have so much knowledge on this, is that I still I feel uncomfortable with the framing of race and gender and sexuality 
and all these different issues as something that is uncomfortable to talk about. Like, what is that where we have to create these different mindsets and certain elements of what we all deal with and encounter on a daily basis and should be seen as a natural part of the conversation. Financial aid is a natural part of the conversation or student services is a natural part of the conversation. So when we're talking about on a campus racial climate or addressing um, issues in terms of gender inequity or, or sexuality and making sure that students feel comfortable in, from all these different areas, why has that become something that's quote unquote difficult or uncomfortable to talk about? Sure. Well, Elizabeth, it's not just something that's become difficult. It's always been difficult for certain people to have that conversation, right? And so here's the thing. We're having this conversation right now, and we are having a fine time having this conversation. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're fine. comfortable with the conversation, right? And so right, right. is white, cisgender, heterosexual, you know, middle class. Right. Those are the ones who have a trouble with the conversation, and they have always had trouble with the conversation. It goes back to Liera's um, um, talking about the culture of, of niceness. It's not right. nice to talk right. about race and racism. That's not right. nice. It's not nice to show the difference is in sexuality and gender and the ways that you know social policy exacerbates. um, conditions and outcomes that people are actually living. That's not nice. You know, um, you make people feel bad. You make people feel uncomfortable when you have that conversation. Now, the people you make feel uncomfortable are the people who who have privilege, right? right? Um, And don't have to deal with the consequences of the fact that we don't have this conversation and that is not normalized. You know, so your question was, you know, how do we how do we overcome that? Boy, um, <laughs> it's a hard one, right? It's a hard question, but it's a good one in that you know, there's this interesting interplay of media and people's lived experiences, what they do in their daily life, you know. Yeah. Um, I was just reading about an example that, you know, and you know the designated driver, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that language, designated driver, that's a part of everyday conversation now. Right. right. The idea of a designated driver was actually developed by a faculty member. I forgot at the right. institute, what institution. It was actually developed by a faculty member. It was, mm-hmm. it was based in research and scholarship, right? And... Mm-hmm. Um, Hollywood, the media and whatnot got a hold of it and started putting it in all their scripts. And it got normalized to talk about DD, the DD, the designated driver. That ended up going into, you know, government policy um, in terms of like ad council and all of this stuff about designated drivers. So now it's like, well, of course, we talk about the designated driver. That's not a big deal. Yeah, and so I wonder if there might be a similar conversation. I think there are folks in the industry who are trying to do this where, you know, what role can the media play in helping to normalize these conversations, right? And so the more you see it on television, you know, so I think about that one of my favorite shows is This Is Us, right? Yeah, love that show. And they deal with all kinds of hard conversations on that show, right? You know? 
um, is that helping to have an impact on people who watch This Is Us and love This Is Us to think about, oh, yeah, you should have a conversation about it's normal to talk with your preteen kid about the fact that she thinks that she believes and recognizes, not believes, and she recognizes that she's a lesbian. Right. right. Um, yeah. Here, let's, I think, I wonder if there's a role for media, basically, in, in helping right. to normalize that conversation, particularly for adults um, who maybe didn't grow up with this at all. But then there's also, I think, the role of K-12 and higher education mm -hmm. in normalizing the conversation. It's one of the points that I make at the front end of that or in front end I of my article. The failure is, to educate students about race and right. racism. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, for sure. Right. You know, um, it's, it's that's how when we look at who voted for the demographic breakdown of who voted for our, our, the current occupant of the White House, it was as much about white middle-class college-educated voters as it was anybody else. Everybody tries to pin it on working-class white people. And it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. no, nah, it's not, no, nah, it wasn't just mm -hmm. them, son, mm -hmm. it wasn't just them. You know, mm -hmm. um, you had a whole lot of college-educated white middle-class people sure. who also voted for that ideology and um, the policy that is associated with that ideology, you know. And so what does it mean for higher ed, for colleges and universities to look at that and see that reality, right? How are we, as I, you know, ask at the end of the article, or not ask, but assert at the end of the article that we have got to pursue ardently the preparation of students for engaged citizenship if we're going to call ourselves a democratic society, right? Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. what's the role of colleges and universities? What's the role in K-12 um, public schools, um, particularly, which educate the majority of youth um, in our country? What's the role, you know, what's their role? What's the role of colleges and universities to pick up that baton um, and continue it? Um, and, and sometimes, you know, Colleges and universities don't have students that didn't just come from public um, K-12, you know, schools. And um, in those contexts may not have had the conversation. So college may be the introduction um, to that conversation from Jump Street, right? And so colleges and universities, I think, have a particularly powerful role in helping to normalize these conversations. And many of them do, you know, in, in terms of, I'll say this, in terms of the work that often is happening on the student affairs side of the house, mm -hmm. right? So what's happening outside of classes in residence halls, in campus programming, in mm -hmm. speakers that are coming to campus, et cetera. Right. Um, but right. you see many student affairs professionals who are trying to push that conversation and make it normal, right. you know? Uh, what's happening is that there's not always in all sectors of the academic curriculum that same enforcement, reinforcement happening, you know. That is such a good so, point. You know, if you're not in an ethnic studies class or a gender studies class, mm -hmm. um, as two examples, there are others um, that I could call out, then you may not hear this at all in your entire four, five, six years of undergrad. Mm -hmm. And it is possible to get through six years of undergrad 
and perhaps never take an ethnic studies course right. or a gender studies course or a queer studies course, you know, or cultural, cultural studies, you know, think about, you know, all of those programs as well. And so it doesn't, it's not the work. So I want to be careful here and say the solution is not necessarily that every student needs to be goes through ethnic, gender, queer, cultural studies courses. That could be a solution, but it's not the only one because that puts a hell of a lot of a burden on the instructors in those areas, right? Mm -hmm. It can't just, you can't just say that. You have to also say and look at where else in the curriculum and if people go into their major right, and the courses required for their major, so they may have those courses in their first year or their second year, but if they never hear it again the rest of the time they're in school, right, um, you're not building that reinforcement, you know, and there is relevance, you know, how do we talk about um, equity and justice through a biological science lens? There's a discussion to be had there. Right? There's a discussion to be had about the way that math um, and mathematics is used to inform social policy. It, it, it happens and it's there. You know, um, it's not just the work of the liberal arts and the humanities. Mm -hmm. But that. all that has to be intentional too, Dr. Stewart. So if Absolutely. there's no one at the top saying, hey, this needs to be incorporated in the curriculum, it's almost like it will only be related to ethnic studies or only related to a queer studies right. class or something that's related to that specific topic. Exactly. Exactly. You're exactly, it, it is. It's a lot <laughs> to think about. And you want to, it, because discussion often gets complicated with, you know, um, well, instructors of academic freedom and you can't tell them what they should be teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, yes, okay, and. <laughs> you know, um, how do institutions set, because institutions set all kinds of expectations for what should be in syllabi. Right. Um, and how, and have to go through approval of learning outcomes and, you know, all of these different things. Um, but it's, that's part of this um, shifting the, culture and the, the foundational philosophy of the institution, right? So you have some institutions now who are talking about wanting to include a diversity statement as a requirement in um, applying for, you know, a, a position on campus, you know, faculty position or even a staff position or whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, the rhetoric around that is mixed um, in terms of whether or not that's effective, whether or not it's appropriate. Um, and whatnot, but it is an example of one of the ways that institutions are starting to think about. <laughs> Notice all the sort of things that I'm emphasizing. <laughs> yeah, starting, <laughs> to, yeah. starting to think about how we might create um, a corpus of faculty and staff who are uh, dedicated to diversity um, on campus, right? Mm. Um, 
it's a start. It may not necessarily be an effective one because people can say all kinds of things in those statements and not actually live up to them. Right. 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 Or live them out. But it, I mean, these are the kinds of, of things that we need to start thinking about. Um, <laughs> these are the things we need to start thinking about in um, in higher education, in my opinion, um, that moves from simply saying, um, you know, this language of appeasement, right? So talk to us a little bit more about that in your address, um, your remarks at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Urbana the idea of the diversity and inclusion rhetoric versus the equity and justice rhetoric. Like for example, diversity asks who's in the room, equity responds with who's trying to get in the room but can't. And then mm -hmm. we have that language of the inclusion saying, has everyone been heard? But justice responds, whose ideas won't be taken seriously because they're not in the majority. So talk to us about that, like you said, that slide rule and that evolution where we need to, as university um, higher education academics as well as administration as well as all different areas and then this really resonated as well with a lot of people that work in human resources in the corporate sector oh, yeah. because these are a lot of the same issues that are coming to the forefront should have been at the forefront but are especially now resonating mm -hmm. with people across the country so talk to us about mm -hmm. how that whole concept how that evolved and how you think that needs to be applied not only in higher education but also in the corporate sector sure sure so I started thinking about what, you know, when I looked at diversity and inclusion and the things that I always hear. So like I said, I, at, at this point, it was um, uh, 17 years or 16 years, and now I'm at, you know, 19 years in the, in the bank um, doing this work, and, and it hasn't changed in the last three years. Um, <laughs> but the kinds of questions or assertions that I always hear um, are what I have here as diversity and inclusion. Hmm. And when I stopped and thought about it, I recognize that those questions focus on the, the things you can count. Hmm. They focus on appearance. They focus on, um, one could say, niceness. Hmm. And they focus on look and see how far we've come. Hmm. Look mm -hmm. at, don't, don't you see how far we've come, you know, since oh. the 60s, since the 80s, in the last five years, you know. Right. So be grateful, We're basically, is the underlying thought right. there that you should have questioned because <laughs> look what happened, you know, in the 60s, but look where we are today. So no question what what's happening right now, right? Right, right. It's, it's, a, it's a celebratory look how far we've come kind of thing. Right. right. Where when we shift to an equity and justice lens, we start looking, we start asking and looking at where, how far do we actually need to go? Right. Okay. Right. Um, it becomes something that talks about, we start thinking about repair. We start thinking about what harm is being done and how um, 
We need to reverse that. We need to um, end practices that cause harm. Um, equity and justice is not impressed by incremental growth, you know. Um, and it looks under the surface, where diversity and inclusion often is looks superficially at who's in the room and the numbers of people in the room and the different um, sorting out of people who are in the room. You know, equity and justice really thinks about what's underneath that. How did those people get to be in the room? You know, and as you mentioned, you know, who's trying to get in the room but can't because of the way the room is set up? And Dr. Stewart, before I, I don't want to interrupt you, but this is something that's bothered me a lot. The also some of the, I guess, uh, it's almost like the, the model minority where it's like, well, you're in the room. So, hey, what's the problem almost? Is if when you're talking about who's in the room but can't get in, who's outside the room and is not able to get in the room, that really reminds me of sometimes I almost feel like I'm being used to weaponize. I don't know if you felt that in your mm-hmm. career. Like, well, Dr. Mm-hmm. Stewart, you're you've been able to, you know, overcome, you know what I mean? Is that something Mm -hmm. that we should be aware of or or try to, sometimes when people say that, I get so angry that I'm not even sure how to respond to that because it's almost like Mm -hmm. I'm being held up as some kind of anomaly to show that, hey, this is possible. Like a Michael Jordan or Oprah, see, Oprah did it. Michael Jordan (laughs) did it. Why can't can't you, right? Exactly. No, I think, Elizabeth, you hit the nail right on the head, you know, and and I like your use of the word weaponized. Um, And so absolutely, the presence of some is used to, is weaponized to justify the absence of others. Right, you know? right, right. Oh, my gosh, um, that's, so, that's so poignant right there. Like, goosebumps again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and so yeah. well, you got here, so why are you complaining? You're here. Right. So it's not just that you got here, why are you complaining? It's a you got here. So we brought X group into right. the room because you're here. Right, right. You know? and so there's, there's also a tokenization that happens. Right. Right. Uh, where then you are are made to have responsibility to speak up for everybody who looks like you who's not in the room, even though, right? So here's the thing, even though, so I'll use me as an example. Okay, I'm in the room. Here's the thing, though. I'm a tenured full professor. My issues and and my frame of experience is not the same as a non-tenure track faculty member or an adjunct faculty right. member. Like me, adjunct. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. And so yeah. if folks like Elizabeth aren't in the room, right. you can't Which I won't be. <laughs> right. I won't be in the room. I'll be home on my laptop. <laughs> right, right. Nobody's going to actually physically be in the room. But, right. you know. Right, 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 right. But, it doesn't, it's like, you're not actually putting, you're not actually serving the needs of really being able to hear all the range of issues that may be a factor in the decision that's on the table, you know? Um, And while I can, and I have, you know, actually done my best to speak up in the in the spaces that I'm in around non-tenure track faculty issues, 
led by, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm like basically just a mouthpiece for the things that I've heard <laughs> from my right, colleagues. Right. Say. I just say what exactly. they, what they say. Um, <laughs> right. But right. Right. Not, but that is not the same as actually bringing those people into the room and then making sure that they can stay in the room and having been able, having made sure that they can stay in the room, then making sure that they're going to be taking it seriously, even though they're not tenured. Right. Right. So just as this example, right. Um, and so it has to get to that level of complexity in your thinking in order to really get into an equity and justice space, right? Um, you know, I think about recently, I thought about this in terms of the difference, you know, on university committees, the difference between people who have PhDs and people who don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and who gets listened to, mm-hmm. you know, I think about the ways that a VP or, you know, a vice president may get listened to, but there's a di- just a director, you know, the director mm-hmm. of, a, of a small office mm-hmm. also in the room and, the, and they say something and it doesn't get listened to or it gets refuted or minimized. Um, so there are other ways that when you think about jobs, status and class, job classification that also goes into play, particularly when we recognize that job status and, and job classification is uh, often related to having minoritized identities as well, right? So look at non-tenure track faculty, they're mostly, in terms of you just looking at a binary gender, they're mostly women, they're mostly mm-hmm. people color, so therefore they're also mostly, you know, there's a strong contingent of women of color who are in these non-tenure track faculty roles um, at many institutions, particularly depending on what um, co- what division within the, the institution that they're in, what academic division. And so it matters, right? It absolutely matters. Um, and when we think about, you know, what are the, in the third, you know, the third set of questions I asked, you know, what conditions have we created that maintain certain groups as the perpetual majority, hmm. right? Um, you know, people talk, I think people think about historically white institutions as an inevitable thing, hmm. you know, well, you know, well, it's it's predominantly white, or it's been historically white for you know a century. So you know, yeah. And it's like, why? Why does it have to be predominantly white in perpetuity? That's not an, an inherent quality. <laughs> that doesn't have to be an inherent quality of the institution, you know. So. Um, but there are conditions that have been created that maintain historically and predominantly white institutions as predominantly white. You know, they're predominantly white for a reason. And how and do we move? move hmm, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. 
And I was just going to ask in, in terms of, because that really brings up a really good point as far as institutions, uh, corporations, organizations where we have this status and we just assume that, well, that's just how it is and that's how it will always be. How do we take, you talked about equity and justice being the yardstick by which leaders should measure their progress and about transformative efforts to promote this equity and justice. How do we apply that? How do we get institutions of higher education? How do we get organizations? How do we get corporate sector where in all of those different industries, we over and over again see the minoritized groups being totally underrepresented. What, how do we get this, this change, this transformative change to happen in meaningful ways? Yeah. So leadership matters, right? Mm -hmm. uh, leadership matters. Their consciousness around this or lack of consciousness around this sets the tone for everybody else underneath them. Hmm. So I think that's one thing. But it can't just be a charismatic leader either, hmm. right? Um, because, you know, many institutions have seen there was, you know, and I saw this in my historical research, at one college, there was a president who was like really on it in terms of these kinds of issues, you know, even around diversity and inclusion was on it. And then he retired. And the next person who came in was like so not on it. Right. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so pet, you know, to the point when you're talking about a, a president who had a pet that um, whose name was N-word. Right. He named the dog the N word, right? And so oh, wow. this, is, this is how far it can swing. This is how far it can swing. Um, if you're only relying on a charismatic leader, okay, right. we can even say this, you know, in terms of the national political context, even. Sure. Um, sure. Um, and even, you know, in, in, in even with all the very legitimate criticisms I think that exist around. Um, the previous presidential administration. So um, charismatic leadership can help, but it's not sufficient. Mm -hmm. There needs to be, you know, um, policies and systems revised <laughs> in order to, um, I like to say, hardwire these kinds of changes. Right. You know, so if you can get it in the bylaws of, you know, an organization or you can get it into the faculty manuals, you can get it into the HR handbook, you know, um, or the HR manual, then it becomes a lot harder to not do this. Mm -hmm. right? Because now there's a policy that this is how we do this. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and you need to abide by it because if you don't, you're out of compliance. Why are people so resistant to that? They are like, oh, well, it should just be based on people should just do stuff. I think people are resistant towards yeah. things like quotas and things that hold you accountable because they're like, well, people should just do it naturally. And it's like, but they're not doing it naturally. Why are they so resistant to bylaws and guidelines and legislation and things that make people do the right thing? Because they don't want to have to do the right thing. That's why they're resistant. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Well, no, you're right. It's, it's a easy answer. They're resistant yeah. because they don't have to do it. And right. so, yeah. you know, it's 
some sense to say, well, people should just, you know, um, people will just do this of their own accord once they understand the importance of it. No, they won't. Right. Which and is what happens not, with the diversity and inclusion. They have like a workshop. Right. And like, oh, we talked about diversity and now everyone go out and be diverse. <laughs> it doesn't ever happen. Right. And here's, yeah. here's the really, um, the really um, nefarious part of all of this is that somebody might not do it, might not support what would be the equitable or just thing to do. Not necessarily because they are consciously thinking, I don't want to do that, but because they are so habitually um, normed, they've been, it's become habit to not do it. Right. And so when you leave people to their own devices, you leave them then to their habits. Mm -hmm. You leave them to the norms that they have developed over time, right? You leave them to, well, this is how we've always done it. Right. Then doing equity and justice means you have to deliberately think about not doing what you've always done. Exactly. It is, because it's not habit yet, right? It has to be intentionally, intentionally and consciously practiced on a regular basis. And sometimes in order to provoke that intentional and conscious practice, you have to have structures and systems and policies that say you need to think about it and do this instead of this. Like what you talked yeah. about with the designated driver, it becomes something right. that once it got started, it just became something, but it took time before that became a it part of just the natural. Yeah, exactly. It takes time and it takes intention and it takes, uh, you mentioned accountability before, and it really is about holding people accountable. If you never hold anybody accountable, change is never going to happen. Because why should they? If you're not going to do anything about it, then why should I do anything different than what I have? You know? Um, and so what are the accountability structures that are in place? And sometimes, so you know, a lot of times institutions and I, I would dare say corporations as well, mm -hmm. um, although that's out of my wheelhouse, I don't know a lot about how corporations run, but I I would I feel comfortable in guessing that this is probably also accurate. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more willingness to reward than there is to sanction. Mm -hmm. Right? Let's, yeah. you know, we'll give you X more money if you do XYZ, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of we're going to take this money from you if you don't do XYZ, you know, and I'm just using money as, as one example, it doesn't have to be money. Um, but we, we are much, we seem much more comfortable with rewarding people who make the effort than penalizing people who choose not to make the effort. And that is a problem because there will always be more people who choose not to make the effort than those who do. So true. Just like that Kool-Aid, that's where the Kool-Aid approach right. comes in, because it's just like, oh, something performative, and then, okay, we, we did our best, we tried, and mm -hmm. move on. 
Right. And then you put all the burden and the labor of trying to make change on the backs of a very few, um, a very few, instead of recognizing this really is supposed to be everybody's job. And if you don't make it everybody's responsibility by holding them accountable, then you're actually producing the opposite effect. Absolutely amazing. You dropped so many gems of wisdom. I could talk to you for like another hour. I want to just hope and pray that you'll <laughs> come back another time and talk some more about some of these important issues because this is so important. This message is so right now what we need to hear, what needs to be understood. It's really societal. It's not just higher education. It's not corporate. It's just everything and everyone needs to be aware of just how important this message is. So I just want to wrap up by asking you one last question. What do you see as the future of higher education when you, of, of all your experience um, working in higher education and all of your observations? What do you think the future of higher education, you kind of addressed it a little bit in your article, that I, the other article that I read of yours in Inside Higher Education, but in your own words, what's your outlook on our industry, on our sector? Ooh, um, hmm. I think we're in a very um, critical time right now, hmm. and not just because of COVID. Hmm. Um, that's good. That's an industry changer hmm. all by itself. But even before COVID, we were dealing with um, student protests. Um, particularly of, of black and other students of color and other minoritized students um, throughout colleges and universities over the last, you know, handful of years, right? Um, and that's going to continue. And we can't ignore that. I think sometimes, you know, institutional leaders are, you know, perhaps maybe looking at COVID as, oh, here's one thing I can focus on. <laughs> It'll bring everybody together, and I can forget about all this other stuff that happened the semester before COVID hit. And the reality is that that is foolish. I think that's a foolish approach. Um, but to go to your, I'm trying to avoid answering your question about what I think the future <laughs> is. Um, but <laughs> I, um. You know, I think the future is very um, uncertain, you know, right now. And I'm, I'm not just saying that to avoid answering the question, but I think there are so many things that are unknown right now. Okay. A lot of it is due to COVID, particularly in terms of public higher education, hmm. that it's really uncertain where we will go from here. And in terms of diversity and inclusion and equity and justice and those conversations on university campuses, I unfortunately see a lot more places that are comfortable sitting in diversity and inclusion. Hmm. And um, I think that is where uh, many uh, will continue to just sit in that place. Um, because it's a hell of a lot easier uh, to approach it, you know, for, and, and let me say this, doing diversity and inclusion is also not easy, 
Okay, but it is easier than equity and justice. Okay, and so I foresee a lot of institutions doing what they are doing right now. Um, those who have already started this work, there are other institutions that, that haven't even started to really talk about diversity and inclusion yet, who just need to start that conversation. Get their footing in diversity and inclusion in the first place. Um, and I think we're still going to see a lot of institutions doing that. It, it's really easy because the student population turns over completely every, you know, four to six years. They have an entirely different student population. And so it makes it, it makes long-term um, pressure um, from students really difficult to maintain um, because students graduate or otherwise leave the institution. And so I sometimes, you know, in my more cynical moments, um, which I have a lot of cynical moments, um, I, I sometimes think institutions rely on that. No one will ever say that. No one would ever say that out loud. But I think we have institutions who are relying on the fact that students will leave eventually. Right. They'll get caught up in trying to graduate and they'll drop this because it takes a hell of a lot of energy um, it takes a hell of a lot of work that students are should be spending elsewhere. Um, and I think institutions just count on that, you know, it, it, and that's a really cynical view. Um, but it's born, it's, it's supported by the lack of movement, um, I think, that we see um, that is evidenced in progress around these issues. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So, Please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.